history is the most important subject that you can study. And if you can't see what's happening in the past, you can't look nearly as far in the future. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Men will still say, this would have fighting power. This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. How often in life does a victory lead to a defeat? It's a basic fact of life that we can never let down even in victory. You just can't live off of one victory. Life is a continual struggle, and when one enemy is vanquished, another one surfaces, even if we don't recognize it as an enemy at first. In one way, when Alexander left Jerusalem alone and invited the Jews into the Greek world, it was a victory for the Jews. Their way of life continued, and the temple survived. But in some ways, it was like a poison pill. It also invited Greece into the Jewish world. And for those trying to stay pure by keeping God's law, this was a dangerous thing. After Alexander died and his generals divided up his empire, the Jews were stuck between two competing Greek rulers, one in the north based in Syria and one in the south based in Egypt. And these rulers led the most powerful remnants of Alexander's empire as well. The fact that the Jews were stuck between these two large kingdoms gave the Jews breathing room because there wasn't one single power dominant enough to assert full control over them. But it also meant, since they're right in the middle, that they were always in the line of fire when these two kingdoms would struggle for power. Each time control of Jerusalem was changed, the Jews were faced with the same problems they had to deal with when Alexander came conquering. Would the new ruler respect their law? Would the new ruler leave them alone? Or, if things got bad, who would the Jews look to for deliverance? This was a terrible time to live in. And I wonder if the inhabitants of the Persian Empire ever wished that the Persians hadn't lost that war to the Greeks. When Alexander died, there was war after war. Thousands were killed. Hundreds of thousands were sold into slavery. All the while, the Greeks were slowly committing suicide fighting over the remains of Alexander's empire. In the middle of this continual struggle, right between the two strongest remnant kingdoms, once again, are the Jews. The history I'm about to cover wouldn't even seem noteworthy because it looks like the countless wars waged throughout all history, except for the fact that the Jews were in the middle of it. And because of that, we have the amazing fact that all of this was prophesied hundreds of years before. In the last episode, I covered how the book of Daniel prophesied Alexander's rise and fall. And in the 11th chapter, verse 4 of that book, it says this about Alexander after he establishes his empire. Quote, And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others besides those. End quote. And so the prophecy shows that Alexander's empire was going to be divided. And then the prophecy focuses on the two remnants that were the most powerful in particular. Quote, And the king of the south shall be strong and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. End quote. So south is a direction and it shows us where the leader is. It's in relation to Jerusalem. 
Go south of Jerusalem at this time period, and the major power that came out of Alexander's empire is the Ptolemaic kingdom, set up in Egypt by Ptolemy in 323 BCE. But there is another kingdom, which would be strong above him, as this prophecy says. And in the next verse, it shows who it's referring to. It's the king of the north. If you go north, you see the other dominant kingdom that came out of the former empire of Alexander, and it's the kingdom established by Seleucus Nicator. Now, there's a lot of detail about these two kingdoms prophesied in the book of Daniel. History shows how all of that's accurate, but I don't want to overwhelm you with details and names that really aren't essential to the story that we're talking about today. But as a reminder of how amazing that fact is, I want to give you a quote from our booklet, History and Prophecy in the Middle East. Quote, For most, the fact that Daniel 10 and 11 record nearly 400 years of Middle Eastern conflict is not a big deal. But what makes Daniel's version different is that it was written before the events happened. That's right. Daniel wrote about 400 years of history before it was history. That makes it fulfilled prophecy. End quote. This is proof of the existence of God and his authority. And that's actually a sub-theme in the series. And while I'll only explicitly state it here, it is the inescapable conclusion of the whole story. Now, during this time, the Jewish high priest was the figurehead and ruler of the Jews. It stayed in the family, of course, in the line of Aaron, as was the law, but it wasn't always from father to son, as brothers were often chosen. Just keep that in mind as we fast forward to 175 BCE. At this time, the king of the north ruled over Jerusalem and just received a new king, Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. And by the way, as usual, I'll butcher these names every once in a while, and I might use the other pronunciation for Antiochus just as a matter of habit. When you read what the ancient historians wrote about Antiochus Epiphanes, you can tell this man is brimming with charisma and charm. Oftentimes, when you come across a ruler in history, you don't get much of their personality or character. But with Antiochus, it just drips out of the page. He was not the most successful of the Seleucids, but he was definitely the most colorful. And he wasn't even supposed to be king. He wasn't the firstborn. He spent most of his childhood in Rome as a hostage. Now, hostage has a different connotation these days, but back then, hostages were used as a system to ensure loyalty. Members of a conquered royal family would be sent as hostage to the conquerors to ensure that that family would stay loyal. They would be treated well, they'll be educated, so it's not like what we would consider a hostage today. But one of the reasons why Rome used the hostage system was because it would impress upon all those that were held hostage in Rome the mighty power of Rome. That city was huge and splendid. So if you were a hostage there, you would see all the power and wealth of the Roman Empire. And when you went back home and you saw how small your capital was, you'd be a lot less likely to rebel, wouldn't you? Rome at this time was the dominant power. It had defeated Carthage a second time after 17 years of war in 201 BCE. And by doing so, they gained control of the Western Mediterranean, places like Spain and part of Europe, southern France. And while they were doing all of that, they were still able to play policemen with the Greeks. They played it very smart with the Greeks, too. You see, the Greek kingdoms were endlessly divided after Alexander died, and they would fight each other over and over. But with Rome, if you got Rome on your side, you'd be able to win 
the conflict. So Rome was able to pick the winners in all of these little wars, and no one resisted Roman interference because Rome never said that they were going to annex territory. While the Greeks fought between themselves, each Greek king that made a bid for power would claim that they're the next Alexander. They would claim that they're out for conquest. They were going to take your territory and take control of it. And so this would frighten the other Greek kingdoms, the smaller ones, and they would ask Rome for help. And Rome would come to help, and the Greeks didn't mind because at least Rome wasn't going to annex territory. You see, Rome was interested only at keeping the balance of power at this time. Keep the Greeks fighting in the east, and they'd consolidate their gains in the west. So Antiochus IV became a hostage when Antiochus III, his father, tried to recreate Alexander's empire and invaded the Greek states in Europe. But the smaller Greek states called on Rome for help, and the Romans defeated him at the Battle of Agnesia in 190 BCE. This ended Antiochus III's dream of recreating Alexander's empire, and in the settlement of that battle, Antiochus III gave up any attempt to conquer Greece and gave Rome hostages one of which was his son, Antiochus IV. And it was in Rome that Antiochus' thinking was shaped, and there you start to get the idea of what kind of personality he had. Edwin Bevan writes in his book, The House of Seleucus, quote, The young Macedonian prince was received on friendly terms by the youth of the Roman aristocracy and became intimate with many of the men in whose hands the destiny of the world rested. The effect of such surroundings can be traced in the character of Antiochus IV, he had consorted with as an equal with equals, and his character acquired a republican bent. His manner scandalized the court by its unceremonious freedom, its undignified familiarity. He had, besides that, violently caught the fashionable Hellenism with its republican ideals and shibboleths. End quote. So you can see in Antiochus, even from a young age, a streak of immaturity. It was some juvenile behavior there from a boy who was bright enough to hold his own with Rome's best. He kind of reminds me of a Prince Harry today, someone who is so resentful of his station in life, he refuses to abide by the customs that tradition dictates. Antiochus III dies while looting a temple in 187 BCE. The pagans at that time, of course, wrote a lot of negative things about raiding a temple, the kind of stuff that says he got what was coming. But he was there because of the massive tribute Rome levied on his kingdom it was the only way he could think of to raise the money. Antiochus IV's older brother, Seleucus Philippiter, inherits the throne. When Seleucus gets the throne, he recalls Antiochus IV back to Assyria and replaces him with his own son as hostage. On the way back, though, Antiochus stops by Athens. Athens is the center of Greek philosophy and basically all things fashionable at that time. Antiochus stays there and absorbs it all in, even becoming a citizen and obtaining high office in the city. Now, whether this is him just outright disobeying his brother in one of those rebellious streaks, or whether he was intending to still go back, we don't know. Because his brother was assassinated by usurper. Here's what Daniel records in chapter 11, verse 20 about this Seleucus, and remember this was a prophecy. Quote, Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom, but within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. End quote. Seleucus had to raise taxes after his father's death 
because he's still trying to pay off all that tribute that Rome demanded of him when Antiochus III lost that battle. But his tax collector, Helidorus, later poisons Seleucus and kills him. So at that point now, Antiochus has a choice. He is Seleucus' son. His nephew is a Roman hostage far away. He's in Athens, so he can grab the throne quicker while no one is there to stop him. Or he can stay in Athens and just let his nephew rule and safely recede into obscurity. What an interesting choice to have to make. Antiochus chooses to gamble. He acquires the help of Eumenes, the king of Pergamon, which is a territory right next to where the Seleucids were, and he's able to get the throne, claiming he's a co-regent ruling with a different infant son of Seleucus. It's a treacherous way to gain the throne. This is how Daniel records Antiochus would take over Seleucus's kingdom, quote, And in his estate shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. End quote. The Bible describes him as a vile person, and you will soon see why that is. His taking of the throne from the rightful heir, that's just the beginning. Once his reign is secure enough, he has the infant nephew murdered, and he becomes the sole king in 175 BCE. But even then, he's still in a tough spot. He needs to unify his kingdom under his rule. And while his brother was repairing the kingdom's finances, Antiochus' kingdom is still weak from his father's military loss to the Romans. So he's not in a strong spot. And it's at this point in time that his neighbor to the south, Ptolemy VI, decides to pick a fight. So when Antiochus sees Ptolemy making plans to conquer some of his territory, a territory that includes Judea, I might add, Antiochus preemptively attacks Egypt in the course of several campaigns. Polybius writes about Antiochus, quote, King Antiochus was both energetic, daring in design, and worthy of royal dignity, end quote. So Antiochus is not the type to sit idly by. Antiochus was a man of action. But at the same time, Polybius shows how Antiochus is mentally unstable. He had, you could say, a streak of the crazy in him. He even gave himself later the title Epiphanes after his name, which means God manifest. He called himself a god, and that's not normal. We don't have all of Polybius' history, but later historians quote Polybius on Antiochus' habits. And it's good to remember that Polybius is actually contemporary of Antiochus, so we get some great primary source information from someone who was alive at the same time. Here's what the historian Athenius of Necrotus records Polybius having written. Quote, Polybius, in the 26th book of his histories, calls him Epimenes, or insane, and not Epiphanes because of his acts, end quote. So there's wordplay on the title Antiochus gave himself, one that's a bit of a roast from Polybius, but it's also very illuminating. You see why Polybius gives him the title of insane later on in this history. You can actually track how Antiochus's insanity deepens in the coins he issues. Early in his reign, the coins have his portrait, that's normal, 
and it says King Antiochus. But a later part of his reign, a star appears on his forehead, which implies divinity. And then the coins are labeled with King Antiochus Epiphanes, or King Antiochus God. And his portrait is idealized into looking like some kind of Greek god with light rays coming off his head like a crown of light. He was the first to be constantly represented like that. Then the last coins show him looking like Zeus, with the label King Antiochus, God Manifest, Victory Bearer. So you can see these coins track his descent into greater instability and insanity. This kind of thinking is inspired by something else. These actions are not those of a normal human being. Athenius begins to tell some stories of Antiochus that show just how far something is off in Antiochus's head. Now, Athenius blames it on drink, but we'll see it's something more than that. Here's what he writes, quote, Not only did he descend to intercourse with the common people, but he also drank in company with foreigners who were in town. And if, Polybius says, he learned that any young men were feasting together no matter where, he would appear with hornpipe and symphony. The result was that most of the party got up and fled at the unexpected apparition. And often he would lay aside his royal robes and putting on a toga, he would walk about the marketplace. End quote. So Antiochus was caught speaking with lower classes in the streets, something Greek kings did not do. It wasn't even safe. And his behavior threw off the foreigners and the people in his kingdom while he's walking around dressed like a Roman. Now you know anyone concerned about Roman power would be offended by that. And maybe that sounds like he's just drunk, but the stories continue. Quote, Also, when he carried on the games at Antioch, he invited all Greeks and any others who wanted to come to see the spectacle. A very large number was present in the gymnasia, and he anointed all persons there with saffron oil from golden basins, and also with oil of cinnamon, nard, majorum, and orris. Inviting them all to a banquet on one occasion, he filled up a thousand triclinia, on another occasion fifteen hundred, and all with the most extravagant appointments. The management of the service was undertaken by him personally. For he stood at the entrance, introducing some, assigning couches to others, and he himself brought in the servants who carried in the courses served. And going round, he would seat himself in one place, or throw himself down in another. At one moment, he would throw aside a morsel or a cup, just as he had put them to his lips. And jumping up suddenly, he would change his place, or walk around among the drinkers, receiving toasts, while he stood sometimes by one, sometimes by another, at the same time joining in the buffoonery of the players." He was even brought in by the mime performers entirely wrapped up and deposited in on the ground as though he were one of the performers. When the symphony sounded the challenge, the king would leap up and dance naked and joke with the mimers so that everyone felt ashamed of him. End quote. This was a king, mind you. This isn't normal behavior. Roman historian Livy, who was born about a hundred years after these events, writes this about Antiochus in his History of Rome. Seated in Roman fashion on an ivory chair, he used to administer justice and settle the most trifling disputes. Roaming through every phase of life, he was so far from remaining constant to any form of it that neither he himself nor anyone else was at all clear as to his real character. He did not speak to his friends. He had a pleasant smile for those who were hardly known to him. He made himself and others ridiculous by his misplaced liberality. 
To some who were of high rank and set great value upon themselves, he used to give childish presents of cakes and toys. Others who expected nothing, he enriched. Some people thought he was at a loss to know what he meant by his actions. Some said he was only playing the fool. Some declared that he was undoubtedly mad. End quote. So this is the new ruler the Jews are facing in 175 BCE. And he's clearly insane. At this time, the Jews are led by the high priest Ananias III. He is an ardent opponent to Hellenization, resisting any encroaching influence of Greek philosophy and thought into the Jewish world. He wants to stay pure and cling to God's religion and law. He's the kind of high priest that keeps the light of God's law glowing bright. Like the psalmist wrote, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Well, Ananias is living that as much as possible in keeping the Jews on that lit path. But a group of Jews in Jerusalem were enticed and seduced by Hellenism and its promise of modernity, acceptance, and wealth. This puts Ananias into conflict with a Hellenizer, his own brother, Jesus, who changes his name into the Greek form Jason. Now, Jason wants the Jews to become more Hellenized. And seeing Antiochus's successful coup as an opportunity, he bribes the Syrians into appointing him as high priest. So he removes Ananias. Now it's important to keep in mind the politics at this time. Antiochus is needing to prepare for a campaign against Egypt and he needs money. He's also concerned about the loyalty of the Jews, with Judea being right in the middle between the two kingdoms. Egypt could easily ally itself with the Jews and get a foothold in the area. So when a Jew comes promising closer ties and more money, it solves a lot of problems in Antiochus's mind, even if it risks destabilizing the area. Daniel prophesied what happened next to Ananias. Quote, And after with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. End quote. Prince of the covenant here refers to the high priest, Ananias III who was forced to flee Jerusalem and later on was murdered by Antiochus' government sometime between 175 and 171 BCE. So the light is starting to flicker in Jerusalem. And the problem is this faction of Jews who are rejecting their law and wanting to adopt Hellenism and its culture. Jason, as a Hellenizer, is introducing all parts of Greek life into Jerusalem. He even builds a gymnasium. Now, this isn't like a CrossFit gym. You have to remember that there's a lot of Greek pagan influence with the men exercising at that time and realize the men exercised naked. So for the Jews to participate in the gymnasium, they had to painfully reverse their circumcision in order to not stand out. And if you think about that, that is quite the departure from God's law. And this whole change throws Jerusalem into chaos. You have a high priest encouraging and leading Jews into Hellenistic practices, while those who stay loyal to God's law are now being forced out of the city as they decrease in number. And at the same time, there's a faction of Jews that want the Hellenism to be adopted even quicker than what Jason is doing. They want a complete Hellenistic Jerusalem. You see, Jason wasn't a full Hellenizer. He wanted something like a mixture. You could see him reasoning that he's just taking both philosophies and combining the best parts of it. That's the kind of reasoning 
that would destroy a people's faith in God. But just by introducing Hellenism into Jewish culture, he opens the way for someone who wants to do it even more so. A more radical Jew, you could say, a Benjamite named Menelaus. And Menelaus wasn't afraid to use force to get all the Jews to Hellenize completely. When Menelaus was sent by Jason to pay the Jewish taxes to Antiochus, Menelaus made a bold bid to become the high priest. He promises Antiochus more money, and if he's in charge, that he'll fully Hellenize the Jews. These two were, of course, linked together because the Jews had, remember, extracted promises that gave them exemptions from tax during their land Sabbaths. So Antiochus agreed. Menelaus convinces Antiochus. Antiochus replaces Jason with Menelaus as high priest now. And this was a big affront to the Jews because Menelaus wasn't from the line of Aaron. And so having him as high priest was like having a Frenchman as the U.S. president. This was against their law and a huge step towards undermining any kind of righteous leadership in Jerusalem, any kind of leadership that could bring the Jews there back to the lighted path. And the fact that the people just accepted it shows how much they had darkened themselves through compromise. And this is exactly what Antiochus wanted. He wanted to unify his kingdom through Hellenism. Antiochus' kingdom was, after all, the most diverse of all the Greek kingdoms. And it included many different people with their different languages and their different cultures and different religions. So even though his kingdom was the largest of all the remnants of Alexander's empire, it was the least cohesive. What Menelaus promised was a gift to Antiochus because he's promising the Jews would convert. And it really is a lie, if you think about it, because without the use of force, there's just no way this would happen. Menelaus goes back to Jerusalem with Syrian troops. Jason flees from the city, and this is all happening sometime around 171 BCE. Now, Jerusalem was going to be led by an eager Hellenizer, someone who wanted to change everything. And many in Jerusalem followed. Jason warned them up after all. So you get the feeling that both Jason and Menelaus were the kind of high priests that wanted to bring the Jews into the modern world. You could see them saying, look, things have changed. Our laws haven't changed. They don't work anymore. We have to change with the world and update everything. That's the kind of reasoning that sounds very familiar to Americans, isn't it? As there are those that are attacking the foundational law in America, the U.S. Constitution. In fact, there's a lot going on in Jerusalem at this time that is very familiar with us today. The people who live in Jerusalem are backing the Hellenizers. And of course, the question is why? Why would they do that? It's clearly courting disaster. One former high priest is already dead. Antiochus is meddling in their selection of high priests, taxes continue to go up, and the people are being divided. So why are they doing it? Well, it just goes to show how seductive Hellenism actually is. I've been talking about it in an abstract way, but let's take a little bit of a closer look to some of the ideas that Hellenism promoted. Because after all, what we're seeing in Jerusalem is a war. A war of ideas. A war for control of people's minds and thoughts. 
I was reading a book about the difference between the Israelite, which the Jews are only one tribe of Israel, by the way. But I was reading a book about the difference between the Israelite mind and the Greek mind. Now, there are many, but here's an example. The Greek mind was based more on the visual. Greek art was about replicating what was seen and idealizing the visual beauty in the world. But if you look at the poetry in the Bible, the Israelite mind was focused more on function. That's why you have in the Song of Songs lines like a woman's belly being like a heap of wheat. Now, you're probably visualizing it right now, but instead of trying to picture it, think about how much human life wheat sustains, and then you get a better idea of what the poet is intending to mean. One other big difference was respect for human life. Now, the Jews were the only culture, the only religion, that did not sacrifice their babies to the gods or killed their own children. There was no infanticide. Spartans, if you recall, they famously threw defective babies over cliffs. Athenians could also kill their babies for up to, I think it was like two weeks, for no reason other than the fact that they wanted to do that. Will Durant makes a point about this in his history book, Age of Greece, and he writes this, quote, Hence the Jews bred abundantly and reared all their children despite war and famine. Their numbers grew throughout antiquity until in the time of Caesar, there were some 7 million Jews in the Roman Empire, end quote. This was one of the practical reasons why the Jews were so resilient. While the other cultures would kill their babies, the Jews wouldn't, and so their population would continue to grow. So the Greeks and the Jews not only thought differently, but in the most important aspect, the value of human life, the two lines of thought were directly oppositional. There was a war of ideas being waged, and Hellenism was starting to win. The kind treatment by Alexander and previous Greek rulers brought the Jews into greater contact with the Greek world and its philosophy. And this was especially true for the Jews that migrated out of Judea, like the Jews who moved to Alexandria, the capital of the king of the south. There, they had to bring in Jewish scholars to translate the Bible into Greek for them to even read about their law and history. So if you look at languages, you can see where the tide was turning. So what were these ideas? Well, when you look at them, they're actually quite familiar to modern ears. At this time, Greek philosophy was consolidating around three main schools of thought. And a brief survey here will show how relevant this story that I'm covering in the past, how relevant that is for us today. We're seeing the same kinds of ideas pop up in our own discourse. And they're pretty much the same arguments made back then. So one school were the skeptics. They're the nihilists of today. They saw no purpose or meaning to what was happening in the world. Durant sums up what they thought by quoting one of the earlier skeptic philosophers. Quote, Nothing is certain, not even that. End quote. Sound familiar? You see, to a skeptic, the world was all about probabilities. There's no point in morals, no point in learning. Everything was indefensible, so just accept whatever the customs of the time were. So if people believed in religion, then accept it. This thinking was so dangerous that when the skeptic philosopher Carnitas was sent to Rome by Athens, Rome sent him right back after three days because he was a danger to public morals. Apparently, they got fed up when he was lecturing against the importance of justice. You see, ideas are dangerous. Even the Romans could see how skepticism could destroy their society. 
And by the way, this reminds me of how the Germans sent Lenin on purpose to Russia during World War I to destabilize it and knock it out of the war. And it actually worked. Lenin was sent back by the Germans. He caused a revolution, turning Russia into a communist nation. And when he took control of Russia, he made a peace deal with them and it ended their fight in World War I. You see, ideas win wars. Churchill has a famous quote about that, by the way. He said that when Germany sent Lenin, Germany, quote, turned upon Russia the most grisly of all weapons. They transported Lenin in a sealed truck like a plague bacillus from Switzerland into Russia, end quote. What a great quote. Churchill actually says that this was one of the grisliest, the most grisly weapon, and the weapon was an idea. History shows how important the war of ideas is. Okay, so then we go to the next school, the Epicureans. Now, their school taught that the only certain thing in life is that pleasure is good and pain is bad. It's easy to see how this philosophy would eventually come to mean that the purpose in life is the pursuit of happiness and pleasure. And I think it only takes a little bit of thought to understand how dangerous that idea is. So I'm going to move on to some other ideas the Epicureans held. Here's what Will Durant says about their other beliefs quote man is a completely natural product life is probably began by spontaneous generation and progressed without design through the natural selection of the fittest forms mind is only another kind of matter the soul is a delicate material substance diffused throughout the body it can feel or act only by means of the body and dies with the body's death despite this we must accept the testimony of our immediate consciousness that the will is free else we should be meaningless puppets on the stage of life, end quote. Now, this is almost exactly what we're taught today. It's evolution before we called it that. It's amazing. People think that Charles Darwin created some amazing new theory, but it's actually the same old philosophy dressed in new terms. With no real purpose or meaning to life, Epicureans just sought pleasure. And you can see how seductive that would be. The third school tried to find some kind of middle ground between philosophy and religion. It kept the form of religion because without it, these philosophers didn't think a moral society could be built. And these were the Stoics. The Stoics emphasized accepting life's difficulties without complaint, shunning luxury, and suppressing feelings. So these philosophies were circulating in the Hellenistic world and I think the Stoicism is actually one of the more insidious ones because it accepts and respects the form of religion, but nothing more. It gives you an excuse to pay credence to past tradition without actually believing it. And all three of these philosophies are present with us today. I bring them up so you can see what the Jews were facing in this war of ideas. And if you think about it, it's not much different than what we face today. They're asking the same big questions. What's happiness? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? These are the questions mankind has always asked. And if you look at the answers the Greek came up with, they're pretty much the same answers those that reject the Bible today have come up with as well. And their arguments were persuading many Jews, especially in Jerusalem. It didn't help that they were under the rule of a king King Antiochus, who was bent on spreading Hellenism to all parts of life in all his kingdom. So you could say in this war of ideas, 
the Jews were under a long siege, and many were caving in. Bevan writes this in his book, quote, That the temptation to conform with the fashion of the world should not have been felt in Judea is impossible. The new stateliness of the Hellenized cities, the magnificence of Alexandria and Antioch, would beset the peculiar people with the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The temptation would, of course, appeal to the rich, to the dwellers in Jerusalem, rather than the poor in the countryside. And if we can say anything about the history of the Jews in these days, when Antiochus IV came to reign in Syria, it is that a part of Jerusalem aristocracy were ready enough to make friends with the rulers of this world. It is a cardinal fact to be grasped in estimating the policy of Antiochus Epiphanes that the initiative in Hellenizing of Jerusalem was not on the side of the king, but of the Jews themselves. End quote. It was the Jews' own weakness that was causing this. Their rejection of the law, they were the ones that invited Antiochus to interfere. You could say the Jews were being betrayed by their own people, and many of them, at least in the cities, were gladly doing so. So this is what is going on in Jerusalem while Antiochus makes his preemptive attacks on Egypt. Remember, Antiochus is a man of action and an opportunist, so he manages to gain the upper hand in the campaign in 169 BCE. He surprises the king of the south, and at that time there are actually two kings in the south reigning jointly, Ptolemy the sixth and Ptolemy the eighth. He meets them in a battle in Sinai and smashes the Egyptian kings. And then from there, he marches into the Nile Delta, takes the most important city there of Pelusium on the eastern part, and marches to Alexandria, the capital city, the most important city of the entire Ptolemaic kingdom, and starts to lay a siege on it. It's at that point that Egypt's government collapses. One of the Ptolemaic kings wants to flee. Some generals are trying their hand at a coup. But in the end, Ptolemy VI makes a deal with Antiochus to be a client king to Antiochus, a king in name, but really under his power. When the city heard about that deal, they revolted, and they made Ptolemy VIII the sole king and continued to resist Antiochus. Now Antiochus is unable to take Alexandria through the siege, so he decides to retreat. But he does keep some troops in Pelusium to try to keep Ptolemy VI in check, and he's got Ptolemy VI there as a puppet king. And after he lifts that siege, Antiochus sends some of his pillaged wealth to Rome and other Greek kings as a sort of a bribe to keep them happy, trying to prevent them from reversing his gains. After all, he potentially has become the greatest power next to Rome. And remember, Rome is so powerful that none of the Greek states wanted to challenge it or provoke it. Not even Antiochus. Not until at least they are strong enough or united enough of the Greek people to be able to withstand Roman power. But the Greeks' love of independence and all that bitter feuding that had been going on for over 100 years since Alexander died had pretty much made it impossible for anyone to truly unite the Greek people. So Antiochus, after he takes a big chunk of Egypt, has to walk a thin line. Rome is still more powerful and if Antiochus doesn't play his cards right, if he doesn't appease the Romans and the other Greek kingdoms, well, they might come and take it back from him. So he tries to cover up what he's just done. He took a chunk out of Egypt. He sets up a puppet king. He tells the Romans and all the Greeks that, look, 
Ptolemy VI is still the ruler of Egypt. I haven't taken control, so nothing has changed. But none of them are buying it. Soon after Antiochus leaves, Ptolemy VI makes amends with Ptolemy VIII of Egypt, and they both decide to co-rule again, overcome their differences, and drive off Antiochus. And now they start looking to hire Greek mercenaries to raise an army so that they can push Antiochus out. This makes sense for Ptolemy VI. After all, why would you be a puppet king when you could at least be a co-king on your own? So in 168 BCE, about one year after he left, Antiochus decides to invade Egypt again. This makes it obvious that all that he had said before about Egypt and Ptolemy ruling it was all a lie, and that his true design for Egypt was to conquer it. And now he's going to go and take it. His preparations don't go unnoticed, though, and this is where the Romans come into play. Now the Romans, as the dominant power, they want the Greeks divided. They know if the Greeks were ever fully united, whether by choice or by force, they could challenge Rome for control of the Mediterranean, and that would make them an even bigger threat than the Carthaginians. Antiochus was well on his way to make it happen. So they wanted an end to the war. They didn't want Antiochus destroyed, though. That would upset the balance of power. What they wanted was just to make sure that the Ptolemaic kingdom would still exist. So, when the Ptolemies see Antiochus preparing for war, they send out delegates to various Greek city-states and Rome asking for armed help. Now, Polybius records that there were certain Greek cities that were actually going to send armed help to the Ptolemies. But a Roman courier arrived while they were deliberating on this, while they were just about to agree to send troops. This Roman courier arrives with word from Rome saying, don't send armed help. Just try to help bring peace between the two kingdoms. And just from that one courier, the Greeks decide not to send military aid. So this shows you just how powerful the Romans were at this point. One letter and Greek policy could be changed. So the Ptolemies, they don't have an army yet and they're without Greek help, but of course they did ask for Rome's help. Here's what Polybius records about that request. Quote, the Senate, when they had heard that Antiochus had become master of Egypt, and very nearly of Alexandria itself, thinking that the aggrandizement of the king concerned them in a measure, dispatched Gaius Papilius as their legate to bring the war to an end and to observe what the exact position of affairs was. End quote. Gaius Papilius was a former consul of the Roman Republic, a seasoned politician, a former leader of Rome. At this point in his life, he's an aged statesman, and he actually knew Antiochus from when Antiochus was a hostage in Rome. They send Papilius over to tell Antiochus to make peace and stop conquering Rome. And of course, they're factoring in this previous friendship between the two of them. This mission, though, is all going to depend on timing. Will Papilius make it in time before Antiochus conquers Alexandria? While Papilius is on his way, Antiochus was already marching into Egypt. Livy, the Roman historian, says that Antiochus was making easy progress. The powerful city of Memphis submits to him. Other cities are voluntarily submitting to Antiochus as well. So he's conquering fairly quickly and fairly easily. And after all, of course, the Ptolemies don't even have much of an army to meet him in battle yet. But by all accounts, it looks like Antiochus is going to be able to finish the job this time. He's going to take Alexandria. He and his army are within four miles of that city when Papilius this elder statesman finally intercepts him. 
this encounter is tense. A diplomat, backed by the most powerful state in the Mediterranean, takes an army head on. And what happens next has to be one of the most remarkable things a statesman had ever done in recorded history. Polybius and Livy both tell the story, and I find that Polybius' account is more colorful, but Livy puts better dialogue into these two people. So I'll quote Polybius, but also use Livy's dialogue. This is probably breaking some kind of rule, but forgive me, I think it's more interesting this way. Quote, At the time, when Antiochus approached Ptolemy and meant to occupy Pelusium, Caius Papilius Linus, the Roman commander, on Antiochus greeting him from a distance and then holding out his hand, handed to the king, as he had it by him the copy of the Senatus Consultum, and told him to read it first, not thinking it proper, as it seems to me, to make the conventional sign of friendship, before he knew if the intentions of him who was greeting him were friendly or hostile. But when the king, after reading it, said he would like to communicate with his friends about the intelligence, Papilius acted in a manner which was thought to be offensive and exceedingly arrogant. He was carrying a stick, cut from a vine, and with this he drew a circle round Antiochus and told him, Before you step out of that circle, give me a reply to lay before the Senate. The king was astonished at this authoritative proceeding, but after a few moments' hesitation said, I will do what the Senate thinks right. Upon this, Papilius and his suite all grasped him by the hand and greeted him warmly. The letter ordered him to put an end at once to the war with Ptolemy. So as a fixed number of days were allowed to him, he led his army back to Syria, deeply hurt and complaining indeed, but yielding to the circumstances for the present. End quote. What boldness from Rome. An entire army stopped by the actions of one diplomat. But such was the power of Rome at the time. He just drew a circle around Antiochus and told him, don't even step outside of that until you give me an answer and you know what kind of answer Papilius was wanting. How bold. You see, any diplomat in recorded history that makes such an aggressive move like that. Now the Romans had actually just finished defeating a different Macedonian king trying to build an empire in Greece. They crushed his army and that ended one of the major Greek power centers at that time. So they crush one Greek king and they tell this other one, one even more powerful, to stop, don't go further. And that Greek king submitted. Rome is in charge in all but name here. Now Polybius thinks that it was just because the Romans had recently defeated that other Macedonian king that Antiochus actually agreed to stop and that if that Greek king had not been defeated, he would have kept going. This is a big blow to Antiochus. It is the end of his ambitions. He was a rising star and now he's been cast back down to earth. All of these Greek kings had dreams of being the next Alexanders, and the Romans had put an end to it. And remember, Antiochus was not a stable man, and now he's been given his largest defeat without even a battle, humiliated by a diplomat. I would think it'd be difficult for any ambitious man to bow to the demands of a foreign power, but to not even get a chance 
would make it even worse. On top of that, Rome ended Antiochus' plans on expanding towards the Greek Isles. The easiest way to do that for him was to take the island of Cyprus. The island of Cyprus was this large island in the Mediterranean, the furthest one east, just about 65 miles off the coast of Syria. So it was the best forward base for Antiochus if he was thinking of expanding and taking over the Greek islands. He sent a force to invade Cyprus. They were successful, but the Romans came with their troops and kicked Antiochus out of Cyprus. And now the Romans had Cyprus as a staging ground to ensure Antiochus played nice. Daniel prophesied this as well, specifically how the Roman Empire used Cyprus to stymie his plans. Daniel prophesied, quote, For the ships of Chittim shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant, end quote. That's in Daniel 11, verse 30. And now all the doors to Antiochus are closed shut. It was a double defeat, and it enraged him. Now remember, this is the guy who even the Greeks thought was insane. And when something like this happens to a mentally unstable man with a lot of ambition, you know that the insanity is just going to ramp up. Classic Hollywood plot, by the way. Villain doesn't get their way and goes even crazier. He's in such a rage. Antiochus is mad and looking to vent. And the Jews give him the perfect target. Daniel said he would have indignation against the Holy Covenant. And there was a specific trigger that allowed him to unleash that hatred. You see, while Antiochus was in Egypt, a rumor spread in Jerusalem that he was killed. And it's amazing at that time how much slower information spreads. And if it's acted without confirmation, you could easily have bad results come from it. There's no iPhone at that time to record what happened or show pictures in a quick and easy way. And so when that rumor was spread, Jason hears about it. That former high priest who was kicked out by Menelaus, he hears about it. And before he confirms it, he attempts to overthrow Menelaus. 2 Maccabees says he took a thousand men with him and attacked Jerusalem, taking it from Menelaus and his supporters. And there is a clash between the two camps with many Jews dying, and it forced Menelaus to retreat to his citadel next to Jerusalem. But he was unable to defeat Menelaus. Jason's coup fails, and he's forced to flee. But during that attack, Menelaus is able to inform Antiochus of what Jason did. He's saying we have a full-scale rebellion in Jerusalem, and he's probably asking Antiochus for help to straighten it out. When Antiochus gets the news of this revolt, and remember, this is after the Romans defeated him without a battle, the Maccabee says he was raging like a wild animal. He's returning from his failed bid to conquer Egypt, and so it's like rage on top of rage for him, and now he has a target for it. Jerusalem. He wants to destroy any Jewish opposition to him and any opposition to the Greek way of life. Using Menelaus and his supporters, he's able to gain entry in the city through deceit. Daniel prophesied that he would, saying he'd have intelligence with them that forsook the Holy Covenant. Josephus says that Menelaus and his party, fully supportive of Antiochus, opened the gates to him so that he took the city without fighting. And that's when the carnage began. And it's all described in Daniel as a prophecy. It's incredible, if you think about it, that Menelaus would do that, would open the gates wide open. You'd think surely some of them would know these prophecies and take a different course of action. But they refused to believe it. And even if they didn't, you'd think there'd be enough history with Antiochus 
from killing their former high priest that you'd know not to trust this guy, but they opened the gates. They trusted him. And Daniel records in his prophecy in verse 24 how Antiochus was going to treat them in a different way than any other previous king had before. Menelaus and the Jews should have known this was not a normal king they were dealing with, but they fell for the delusion. Antiochus was deceitful, and here's what Daniel wrote in verse 30, quote, He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant, end quote. It was an inside job. Joe Fleury writes in his booklet, Daniel Unsealed at Last, quote, This man found some people inside the temple who would betray God, and he allied himself with them and had indignation against the holy covenant, end quote. This indignation would be a tragedy the Jews had never experienced before. Even when they were taken into Babylonian captivity, there are certain things the Babylonians wouldn't do. But Antiochus, no, he went further. He did things only a man who thought he was a god would do. And you would think it'd be impossible for something worse to happen than have your king and his sons murdered, your city ransacked and pillaged, the women raped, and everyone still alive sold into captivity in a faraway land. But Antiochus, once again, insane and inspired by something else, manages to find a way to express his hatred for the Jews in an even more extreme way. Something worse than slavery. Daniel makes it clear, and the history confirms this prophecy that what happens next is a two-stage attack on the Jews. Daniel writes, quote, An arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. End quote. Now, Daniel uses a lot of interesting terms there, so here's how Joe Fleury explains it. Quote, the abomination that makes desolate in verse 31 is an army that smashes Jerusalem. It desecrates the holy place and takes away the daily sacrifice. This happened in 167 BCE. Tradition says that Antiochus built a statue of Jupiter Olympus in the Holy of Holies, the holiest place inside the temple. In 169 BCE, he butchered the city's inhabitants and looted the high temple. End quote. Joe Fleury writes in Daniel Unsealed at Last that abomination of desolation are the strongest, most condemning words in the Bible. Try to understand that. These words aren't used lightly. So Antiochus goes after the Jews twice. He desecrates the temple, takes away the daily sacrifice, casts down the sanctuary. And each time he goes after the population. And later on, he decides to go after the Jews outside of Jerusalem. Here's what Josephus records. Quote, the king came up to Jerusalem, and pretending peace, he got possession of the city by treachery, at which time he spared not so much as those who admitted him into it on account of the riches that lay in the temple, but led by his covetous inclination, for he saw there was in it a great deal of gold and many ornaments that had been dedicated to it of very great value, and in order to plunder its wealth, he ventured to break the league he had made. So he left the temple bare and took away the golden candlesticks and the golden altar of incense and table of showbread and the altar of burnt offering and did not abstain from even the veils which were made of fine linen and scarlet 
he also emptied of it its secret treasures, and left nothing at all remaining, and by this means cast the Jews into great lamentation, for he forbade them to offer those daily sacrifices which they used to offer to God according to the law." End quote. The light was put out. Figuratively and literally, Antiochus begins an attack on God's religion and way of life. He takes away the daily sacrifice, casts down the place of sanctuary, or the place where God's work was being done. And this is such a tragedy, it's hard to fully grasp the significance of this event, both if you're living at that time and even for our day today. How significant is that event? What Antiochus did was try to stop the very reason for Jewish existence. You see, when God was establishing Israel, he told Moses to tell Israel, quote, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, end quote. Israel and the Jews were one tribe of Israel. And at this time, the Jews, and there were Levites and Benjamites with them, were the only ones keeping that going. Those were the only tribes left keeping God's law. The only ones that still had that knowledge. That work had stopped before with Babylonian captivity in 586 BCE, but the temple was rebuilt in 516 BCE, and since that time the daily work continued. But now Antiochus stopped it. All because of the Jews' rejection of the law. That light goes out. Antiochus, after emptying the temple of everything, rededicates it as a shrine to Zeus, sets up an altar built over the old one, and in the place of those daily sacrifices that he took away, he had pigs sacrificed. This is an egregious affront to God and the Jews. Josephus records this, quote, And when the king had built an idol altar upon God's altar, he slew swine upon it, and so offered a sacrifice, neither according to the law nor the Jewish religious worship in that country, end quote. And this is the first instance of where you see how Antiochus manages to go further than the Babylonians. If your whole way of life is tied up to your law and your worship of God, and someone like Antiochus desecrates your temple, he doesn't destroy it but desecrates it and makes a sacrifice totally contrary to that law, well, how does that not make you boil in indignation? This is someone stepping out of their way to insult you and rub it in your face. But of course, this is something more than an insult. After doing all of that, he leaves Jerusalem and he can tell it's like he's thinking about a final solution. How do I deal with the Jews once and for all? Final solution. If you recall, this was the term used by the Nazis to describe what's became known as the Holocaust. Their final solution was to kill all the Jews they could, and by the end of World War II, around six million of them died. Well, Antiochus comes up with his own final solution, and it's evil. And what did this man who thought he was a god come up with? He knew he couldn't exterminate the Jewish people completely, though he definitely killed as many as he could. So instead... His final solution was to exterminate the religion. It's the religion, mainly after all, that makes the Jews different. Their law, 
their way of life, and he's going to make it disappear from the earth. You could say he turned off the light and was going to ensure that no one could ever turn it back on. Two years later, Antiochus issues a decree, and with that decree, of course, came more slaughter, more pillaging, Jerusalem gets ransacked again, but with something more. Here's how Durant describes these events, and focus on the last part of this quote. Quote, Antiochus, not dead but humiliated, moneyless, and convinced that the Jews had obstructed his campaign against Egypt and were conspiring to return Judea to the Ptolemies, marched up to Jerusalem, slaughtered Jews of either sex by thousand, desecrated and looted the temple, appropriated for the royal coffers its golden altar, its vessels, its treasuries, restored Menelaus to supreme power, and gave orders for the compulsory Hellenization of all Jews. End quote the compulsory Hellenization of all Jews. It can get lost with all the detail of the death and the pillaging, but this was Antiochus' final solution. He was going to exterminate the religion, blot it out. This was something not attempted by the Babylonians before. What ancient king would have even thought of that? It was inspired, though, by something else, and you see a hatred which is going above and beyond what you would even typically expect in these situations. Here's what Gerald Flurry writes, quote, The goal to crush and destroy Israel's faith comes from the devil. End quote. We are seeing something so evil, it's going beyond the capabilities of a normal human being. There's an extra dimension to this, and in his prophecy, Daniel makes it clear. There is another place Daniel prophesies about Antiochus, and we'll start when he actually first talks about Alexander, but here's what he prophesies, quote, Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven, end quote. So that's speaking of Alexander the Great, which we covered in part one, and his kingdom was divided into four main divisions. And then comes this, quote, And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land, end quote. So that's speaking of Antiochus, and here's what Daniel records further in that prophecy, quote, And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. End quote. What Daniel shows here is that there's another element to this. Host here refers to an army of men, but also of angels and demons. In other words, there's a spirit world. And it's real and very involved in what's going on here. There's a reason for the instability we see in Antiochus. And he can't fully understand that nor his actions without the spiritual dimension added. Remember, even the Greeks thought he was insane. Think about that. Jared Flurry writes, quote, Anytime a person like Antiochus is involved, it is more than just Antiochus that you are dealing with. There is a God-hating evil spirit power at work. That is the whole lesson here. End quote. And what a lesson to think about. The signs are clear. 
But do you believe what's revealed in the Bible? Do you believe the history recorded? It's important to understand just how deep this evil goes. That decree was made and enforced. And what Antiochus did originally in Jerusalem, he spread to the rest of Judea. Every city, every village would be affected. Every Jew is going to be forced to stop obeying God's law and be forced to worship a pagan god. First Maccabees states that King Antiochus wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that each should forsake his own laws. But if you think about the decree, it specifically targets wiping out the Jews because all the other pagan religions, they could assimilate and reconcile their worship with whatever God Antiochus wanted. That was one of the things we pointed out with the growth of the Catholic Church. They were able to absorb all those pagan religions because it was very similar. But that's not so with God's religion. There's no assimilation possible. It's utterly different, utterly unique. Antiochus passed this decree because he wanted to remove all remains of God's law and way of life. It was the complete, total eradication of God's knowledge. He wanted to extinguish the light. This was the ancient king's attempt at thought control. Here's what Bevan writes, quote, But the Hellenism, which Antiochus propagated, went further than political forms, or even real political privileges. It extended to the sphere of social and private life, to the manner of thought and speech, to religious practice. Imaginative and sentimental Hellenism was no doubt in part the motive which governed Antiochus, but there was considerations of policy as well. Some principle was needed to unite and fuse a realm whose weakness was that it had no national unity. And Antiochus, like Alexander, of whom indeed he often reminds us, and Alexander run wild, sees such a principle in a uniform culture, resting upon a system of Greek cities, and obliterating or softening the old differences of race and tradition. It was not exactly a new idea, but it no doubt revived with a new sort of splendor, and it stood out more distinctly as an imposing ideal, in the glow and color from the strange fire of Antiochus IV, end quote. I would say that that strange fire was the devil's fire. This was not a war just on people, but it was a war on religion, and Antiochus was about to wipe it all out. Josephus writes, quote, he also compelled them to forsake the worship which they paid their own God and to adore those whom he took to be gods and made them build temples and raise idol altars in every city and village and offer swine upon them every day. He also commanded them not to circumcise their sons and threatened to punish any that should be found to have transgressed his injunction. He also appointed overseers who should compel them to do what he commanded. End quote. Antiochus's decree was enforced with the death penalty, conform or die. Antiochus went further than any previous ruler had gone before. This wasn't just a routine invasion and conquest. This was to blot the name of Israel out. And many of the Jews capitulated. Remember, Daniel's prophecy gives the reason why this would all happen by reason of transgression or because of their lawlessness. They rejected their law. Years of giving into Hellenization, adopting pagan customs, all led to this moment. The policy of Jerusalem's ruling elites to placate Antiochus by rejecting their laws and abandoning their traditions failed. The Jews sought peace in assimilation, but they found desolation. It looked like Antiochus was succeeding too. 
Josephus writes this, quote, And indeed, there were many Jews who complied with the king's commands, either voluntarily or out of fear of penalty that was denounced. But the best men, and those of the noblest souls, did not regard him, but did pay a greater respect to the customs of their country than concern as to the punishment which he threatened to the disobedient, on which account they every day underwent great miseries and bitter torments, for they were whipped with rods, and their bodies were torn to pieces and were crucified, while they were still alive and breathed. They also strangled those women and their sons whom they had circumcised, as the king had appointed, hanging their sons about their necks as they were upon the crosses. And if there were any sacred book of the law found, it was destroyed, and those with whom they were found miserably perished also. End quote. That is a despicable tragedy. Many of the Jews gave up, and those that resisted were tortured and murdered. And as a result, the knowledge of God and his law was about to be erased from the earth, cast down and lost forever, the light extinguished. Imagine how different the world would be. How do you even get Judeo-Christian values without the law of God in the Bible? How does the Western civilization even operate without those morals and values? We'd be living in a wildly different world. It's so different, it's impossible to imagine. But at this bleak moment, when the forces of darkness were practicing and prospering, when those who stood up for light were being stamped down and destroyed, a leader emerges. One man and his family, with the courage to stand up to the king and his armies and say, no, I won't compromise. A leader who held fast to the law and the teachings. His name was Mattathias, and his family would be called the Maccabees. They would be the glowing embers that would reignite the flame. Today's show is part two in a series about Antiochus and what he did to God's people. He was prophesied in the book of Daniel in such an accurate and precise way that most people believe Daniel was written after the events were recorded. I have an article in the show notes which explains how Daniel was in fact written before and he was prophesying. And one of the most interesting things about the book of Daniel is that he mentions the time of the end, meaning the prophecies that he recorded aren't all fulfilled. If that piques your interest, you can order two books by Joe Fleury for free, Daniel Unsealed at Last and Daniel Unlocks Revelation. And these two books will show how the rest of the prophecies will be fulfilled and why understanding the true nature of Antiochus and what he is about and his motivation is so important for today. Rewind Repeat, a history podcast, airs on kpcg.fm 101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on the trumpet.com or on kpcg.fm.